Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Unverified Accounts. I'm your host Chris here with Liza and Philip. Hey guys. Hi. Guys, how's it going? All right, so we got a really good episode for you coming up. We read the book Bullshit Jobs. Liza, I just really want to thank you for putting us to read this. This book had been on my radar for actually years now, but I finally got around to reading it. It's a really great book. Uh, brings up a lot of issues that we we're all concerned with and stuff. But um, before we get started, Liza, you um, said there's some big news uh, this week with regards to like theaters and streaming. So you want you want to give us an update on that? Yeah. So there's two major things going on this week, and um, one I'm pretty sure that no one missed, which is when Disney announced like 52 new projects they're going to be coming out <laughs> um, uh, on their streaming service, Disney Plus. Which is uh, you know if, if last year and like the launch of their streaming service and the Mandalorian was kind of like a, was kind of like a soft opening, but this recent announcement, um, it pretty much shows all the capabilities of what they are going to do and what they can do and just how much they own, you know, like it's, it's almost like bragging about how much, how many properties that they have scooped up Mm. and how much talent they've also scooped up. So yeah, it's it's like a return to the studio system that the the boys from the 70s really, really worked hard to dismantle. Um, another thing that's going on and like the one that concerns me the most is Christopher Nolan and Dennis Villanueva. Uh, Dennis Villanueva, he, um, he's, he's coming out. His new movie is Dune. Um, <laughs> that's like I, a Spanish I, pronunciation sounds like. He's French Canadian, Villeneuve. It's Villeneuve. <laughs> Can we Sorry, erase that whole sentence? Because I always he's... thought that he was Spanish, and I like in, in the <laughs> oh, so no, in like Filipino, French Canadian. it's pronounced Villanueva. Yeah, yeah, it sounded very okay, Spanish. Okay, yeah, erase, okay. erase everything I said. I'll go back. <laughs> okay. All right. I, say it again. How do you say it? I have to. I have to Villeneuve. like. Re, I have to reprogram my brain. Villeneuve. Villa. What? Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Two syllables. Yeah, Villeneuve. It's, it's two two syllables. Mm-hmm. So I'm going from four syllables to two syllables. <laughs> that's just call him Denny V. Just so call him Denny V. Denny V. I don't want to do that. Okay. Yeah. Ville Neuve. It's Ville with a V. Ville Neuve. Ville Neuve. Okay. I'm yeah, going to redo the whole it. part. Okay. Erase everything I said after oh, the Disney I kind of want to keep it. It's funny. It's pretty I don't want to keep it. No, I don't like it. <laughs> all right. All right. No, no. Eliza, I don't want we it. Don't keep it. We all, right, keep all right. All right. The second thing that happened is that Christopher Nolan and Dennis Villeneuve are fighting back. No, against- you do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I understand why you can't shake it. Why you got to make it like five syllables. Because when I pronounce it in my head, I have the Filipino pronunciation with Villanueva. Yeah, yeah. Dennis yeah. Villanueva. I've like seen every movie and I like can't pronounce his name because I pronounce it like a Filipino way. I mean, this is a total aside, but uh, Philip, do you know the, I think it was the Indy 500 racer Jacques Villeneuve I mean that's like that's how I know that that how to say that name because like, from when I was younger I've heard it many times so Liza we, we have a like t- like 30 year advantage on you on hearing this name so <laughs> and we're Canadian bad. so yeah yeah, yeah anyway, he's a French Canadian so, race car driver so Christopher Nolan and Dennis uh, director <laughs> of Dune are, <laughs> are they're fighting back against uh, Warner Brothers for their HBO Max decision and other directors, I expect, 
them. I expect more directors to follow. Like this is this is basically where Scorsese left off last year when he was going up against Marvel. And I believe that the backlash against men like Nolan and Scorsese as like elitist white privilege assholes is completely manufactured. Uh, basically what is happening is um you know, last year when Scorsese said that Disney and Marvel are monopolizing the film industry and it's going to be a return to the studio system. Um, you know, Disney, Disney is basically, so these deals and these acquisitions that Disney's involved in, they're meant to bully out other movies. And it's important to know that mm -hmm. like Disney doesn't just own Marvel and they don't do, just do kitty movies. Like they've got ESPN, they have, um, Fox Searchlight also. So like if you're a fan of Terrence Malick movies like I am, like the serious art movies, like Disney also owns them. So they have like the entire, mm -hmm. they have like Fox Searchlight, they have like 20th Century Fox. It's like an enormous vault of movies. Um, and yeah, like it's, you know, like destroying movie theaters. Like it, I understand that like for these kinds of movies, if you live in a big city where there's a lot of art film theaters, that don't want to run Disney movies, like you have the option of going to those, but most cities, like if you're not in a top 10 market, you probably don't have those kinds of theaters. So like, who's to blame here? It's, uh, is it, is it the audience, like audiences who only show up to theaters if it's a blockbuster tentpole event, or is it Hollywood studios for allowing themselves to be run by Wall Street MBAs instead of creatives, which is how they used to be run? I think that if you care about movies like we do and you don't like a company like Disney bullying everyone else out and monopolizing everything, I really think it's time to join with like Team Scorsese and Team Nolan. Um, you know, they've been very demonized. And I really believe that it is like the more I think about it, it's like a smear campaign by these streaming corporations and companies like AT&T, which owns Warner Brothers. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, when it comes down to it, destroying movie theaters is, it's really about, see what, what Nolan and Scorsese are doing is they are defending the, the jobs of the people involved in the film industry. They're not just defending like the multimillionaire directors and like, um, actors, like they, they are destroying movie theaters, destroys the wages of the people who make the films. Like, I really think that this is another example of um and, and like the way that people are just piling on on the backlash against nolan and scorsese i really think that this is just another example of how society hates creatives you know we believe can you, can you, can... that creative professionals need to be punished and made to suffer rather than paid to make art and like we hate it when people have creative non-bullshit jobs that they love you know california there's a there's an article that i'm that i'm uh chris is going to post in the show notes for this episode, but California just recently passed Proposition 22. So it makes sense that next, they're gonna go after the TV and film unions next. They're gonna collect all those streaming numbers while at the same time cutting down on the labor. Do, do you know, Liza, if like Scorsese and Nolan have an actual plan and like action they're gonna take to push against this or are they just kind of putting a critique out there, right? Cause like, Think about it. Scorsese most recently famously put out his his big movie on Netflix. Mm -hmm. The Irishman. Right. Which he has admitted it's because no studio will pay him that Netflix gave him the money. Nolan has talked about it. Nolan has Nolan has has 
Nolan's recent comments have both been mostly critique. He's been talking a lot about like, um, you know, there's that the move to streaming is really, um, he's, he's been questioning whether the move to streaming is really about the pandemic or if it's about something bigger, like the fact that Netflix had more Oscar nominations than any other studio last year. And, you know, like he's, he's been talking about like, it doesn't suit the narrative that the tech companies or all these major corporations kind of want to put out there right now that people just like, there's less of a demand for movies, you know, cause there's not, there's absolutely a bigger demand for movies. And like the, the, the experience of like um, watching a movie and like talking about, talking about the movie together. Like, I don't know, like, even though we don't watch it in a theater, like, I don't, I, I don't know what to say about it. It is, it, it is definitely, yeah, you, it's I, like, I feel like you're personally torn about here. it. I feel like you're personally torn about it, Eliza, because you, you've been saying recently, just in our, our chats, like how you actually really enjoy the lockdown. Like you enjoy not going out and you enjoy streaming movies conveniently watch like three in a day, mm-hmm. you know, from mm-hmm. your, from your house while doing chores or while paying attention or whatever, right? Which you can't really do with the theater. Theater mm-hmm. world, but your but your consumption of movies have gone up. So what I don't understand about this whole thing, we can clear it up for me and the listeners, is like, how is this destroying? How is this like move towards a studio model where like companies like Disney are monopolizing everything? How is that destroying the jobs? Because the movies still need to be made, right? You still need to have the editors, FX guys, actors, etc., still making the movie. So how is it actually going to end up destroying the jobs? Well, isn't the well? I, I glanced at the article. Isn't isn't it saying that? Um, at least with the, where the theaters are concerned, there there's a whole uh, industry tied up to that. I mean, yeah. you mean just off the top oh, of your the head. Well, like if you think yeah, about yeah, if you think about like what happens in France, for example, they're so protective of their film industry and their uh, theater their theater unions. You know, like I don't know what it is in the pandemic if they've changed the rules, but the rules in France um, very recently. Uh, where the movies have to be in theaters for 36 months before it can move to streaming. That way everybody, you know, it protects, it protects like the first run theaters. It protects second run theaters. Okay. But my question is like, I, I, I understand those, those jobs, those jobs in those theaters, which are many like thousands and thousands of jobs are, are at risk for sure. That makes sense. But you were talking about creators, talking about people who are like doing the editing, doing the, the color correction, the FX stuff, right? Also, in the article, they talk about residuals. I think the way that you watch it on streaming is different than when you say you run it in a theater yeah. or if you, um, I don't know, like put it out on TV, like uh, uh, air a movie on TV. I think nobody really knows how that works yet. So it could be kind of like how Spotify screws over musical artists, even though maybe they get more exposure on Spotify. Who's that money going to? It's not going to the artist. So I think that's the thing. Yeah, so like, so like, the, so the, 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 you know, the actors, they're probably not going to take much of a pay cut, right? And like the big mm-hmm. name directors and studios will definitely not take a pay cut. So who will take a pay cut? We know it's going to be all the people that are behind the scenes. Right, right. And I think that's a perfect way to transition into bullshit jobs. The Right. And I think that's a perfect way to transition into bullshit jobs because Eliza, you talked about how... Um, you know, this like resentment against artists uh, and all that. And this book talks about. Yeah. So like when Philip asked me, you know, he, that I feel if I feel personally conflicted. Yeah. Like that's that's like it's 
it's something I struggle with like all the time with, with all these, like mm -hmm. this whole streaming versus theater discourse. It's like, I do prefer to just stay home and watch movies. Like that's, that's how I prefer to experience, um, to experience movies nowadays, especially with kids and like a pandemic. Yeah. All right. So let's move into the book. So this is Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. And um, just quickly sum it all up. He, he asked the questions of, you know, how many jobs, uh, of, of the ones that people work are actually necessary. A lot of people have um, kind of pointless paper pushing jobs. Everyone knows it, but they can't openly talk about it. And this was sparked, Liza, by a question you posted on your Instagram yeah. asking, what, what, what exactly happened again? Could you uh, give us a recap? Yeah, so, I, so a few months ago, I was reading Bullshit Jobs and I decided to post a Instagram story poll asking people about their own bullshit jobs. And like, it's probably one of my most popular polls. Just all the responses that I got of just people griping about the total bullshittery <laughs> of what they do for a living, you know, like. Okay, so what did people say? Okay, so like one person responded, for example, I work in HR, so every single job is like the most bullshit job. You know, <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, that makes sense. Like spending all day in a sterile office environment, like it's going to make people completely numb and uninspired, you know, like the, the book mm -hmm. also mentions that like the rise of social media is totally tied to the rise of bullshit jobs. Yeah, that social media is essentially the like artistic byproduct of office culture, which yeah. makes sense in a way, because like, I'll be honest, a lot of times when I'm at work, that's what I'm doing uh, in my downtime. And it explains the just, you know, no, nobody's actually doing anything besides just posting or, uh, you know, shit posting, cringe oh, wait, posting, uh, whatever. Hold on. To, be, to be clear, there's, he's saying that the um, social media is producing content or sorry, a distraction yeah. that allows jobs to become bullshit jobs. Or is he saying like social media itself are bullshit jobs? No, both. no, no. He's saying that because of office culture creates so much time when you can't really do anything because you don't have real work to do, but you also can't, you know, be lounging around reading a book. Uh -huh. The only way uh, you can express kind of like your uh, thoughts or even, dare, dare I say, art mm -hmm. is through social media. Got it. Because okay. it's short, okay. yeah. you know, it's like tweets are only like 200, what, 280 characters. And then like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, someone else responded, an advertising account executive. And it's like, yeah, advertising is like one of the worst industries out there because um, you have to create the demand, you know, like supply has increased demand faster. So now they're just creating demand by creating problems that don't exist. It's so fake and stupid. Um, mm -hmm. Pretty much uh, most, of, most of the responses came from people that work in finance. Like all those people hate their jobs and they know that <laughs> If like the entire finance industry disappeared tomorrow, the world would be so much better off. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we can all understand why finance jobs are many of them are super useless. The the funny and ironic thing is that advertising jobs are advertisers are probably the best people at telling the world that their job's important and necessary, right? Because they themselves have the job of of marketing. Um, but that's that's super backwards, right? Because it actually doesn't make a lot of sense. They're just there to 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 generate uh, consumer demand and not necessarily actually do anything. Like they're not producing the widget. Right, they just want you to to want the widget. Yeah. Anyway, uh, before I ask you guys your actual opinions on the book, I just want to just uh, just quickly go over the main points of the book because one of the main questions that asks, okay, so if we supposedly live in a capitalistic society, 
in in the internal logic of capitalism, bullshit jobs shouldn't exist. They are a drain on any company because why would you hire somebody to, uh, you know, hand uh, process Excel sheets into another Excel sheet uh, <laughs> when you don't have to do that, or you can just make a software uh, company do it or whatever. And uh, and the short answer is that it is essentially just an exercise of power, whether it's like a society-wide power in which keeping people in the office nine today every day is a good way to control the population, and for like the CEOs and the people at the top to have essentially their own fiefdom as feudal lords. And that's a word that he uses a lot in this book, that this is like this managerial feudal system mm-hmm. in which they get their little uh, serfs and their, and their lords and vassals, and they just get to feel like big shots. And there's a really interesting part where I think it's some person uh, recounts to Graeber about this plan he had that would actually save the company lots of money by eliminating like thousands of employees and all the people at higher up were like, yeah, we don't want that. It's not because they're altruistic and they want to keep these people employed. It's because without that, uh, without those employees, they have no power. All they have is like money and money is nice. But a lot of people, the reason they want money, especially the super wealthy is because it gives them power. Um, so that's very interesting. So what do you guys think of the book? I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's very readable. I mean, it talks a lot about like economics, philosophy, even theology, but Yeah, and it's not academic and like reading academic stuff and theory is like one of my least favorite things to do, even <laughs> though like it's important to do it. Philip, what about you? What were your thoughts? I I I found that it was enjoyable because it really riled me up. Like it, there was a lot of choice quotes in there that like really really pissed me off. Um mm-hmm. we'll we'll get into some of that stuff in a bit, but like it it makes a lot of good points and it's also just a really good framework for thinking about you know, employability, the function of, of employment, uh, you know, job, it, 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 like the, the purpose of the labor movement. I think it was really good at um, talking about that, that aspect of it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a good one. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting questions it poses is that, okay, why, uh, why do people get upset at bullshit jobs? Because in the big scheme of things, like so many people around the world work really hard for little to no money. Uh, yeah, people in our society are doing the exact opposite. They're working very little for relatively a lot of money. Yet so many people are dissatisfied by that. So what what are your thoughts on that? Because then a common attack would be, well, you're just spoiled. You're you're not entitled to doing meaningful yeah. work. So why are you complaining? Yeah, it's why we. It's why society is so mean to creatives. Right, and the book also uh, addresses that. In that it's not that these people, ha- well, they do hate them, but it's not because they think they're worthless, but actually because they're jealous because they of the it. fact yeah. that. Yeah, because to be a creative or even being, um, I mean, he even says like, like basically, uh, like sanitation workers provide way more value to society than most, you know, white collar people. And it is that resentment knowing that, hey, you, you know, despite my salary, despite my benefits, um, I actually contribute less to society, which is why they got to pay me so much. Because if without the money, nobody would do these jobs. And it's that resentment. And there's this whole quasi-religious belief that if you're doing something meaningful, then that should be its own reward. Therefore, you don't deserve any money because you're already getting some kind of like spiritual fulfillment. Right. It's I like the suffering has to be a virtue. Sucked. It comes from Protest- the Protestantism. It comes from like that Northern right. European Protestant work ethic where it's like the more, the more unenjoyable the work, the more like, I don't know, spiritually rewarding it's supposed to be. <laughs> Right, and it's also been hijacked by the the capitalist class because it's very convenient for them to to also do that because you know mm-hmm. it keeps unions weak, it keeps and it, and it uh you know makes people feel like they have to become one of their corporate minions, which keeps the you know the the capitalist class strong because you know it more in their retinue means the bigger their their fiefs are bigger. Yeah, he he offers up a good litmus test when he talks about like 
think about wh- which jobs if they go on strike, right? If they if mm-hmm. they you know take some sort of like labor action would actually mm-hmm. cause a disruption to society versus the ones that do not, right? Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. and in this case he's not talking about artists and stuff. He's talking about like you know like uh, in his case like the London tube workers, right? The subway workers, mm-hmm. right? Sanitation or like nurses, workers, like in sanitation New York City. workers, like. The city is fucking fucked if if they ever you know step step down from their jobs. But like, let's say we you know let's say a bunch of like hedge fund uh, CEOs or workers <laughs> had a had, had a strike, right? Like, we would, would all first cheer. of all like yeah, you cheer <laughs> or it, or you would you would there'd be zero effect on your life. And also like there's no there's no sympathy for them either be because like they're, a positive they're, effect. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's pointing out. But there's you, they also have would have no um you know there's no there's no detriment to their lifestyle. They're probably like so flush with cash already it wouldn't actually affect them, right? Whereas you know you, you can imagine that like bus drivers are not making as much as a hedge fund uh, mm-hmm. investor. Yeah. So now, he talks about this very funny incident in Ireland where bankers apparently went on strike. And then <laughs> they realized they should never ever do that again because nothing changed. Yeah. So you never hear about lawyers going on strike or you know bankers or you know insurance agents going on strike because then you just expose your own uh, lack of leverage because in order to go on strike your leverage is the world has to come to a screeching halt but if it doesn't and in fact it might even go on better uh-oh now you've been exposed yeah he, he the the kind of follow-up on that that i thought was really astute like a really good ar- argument is that uh, or point is that like right-wing movements have been really good at um kind of capturing the hatred that people have towards uh like meaningful jobs mm-hmm. right like whenever mm-hmm. there's a strike you always have those right-wing papers and whatnot in the case of canada like in the toronto sun um saying like hey like these teachers are fucking up our you know they're fucking our system they're asking for all this money you know you know how much to make already um and and really just rallying up the population uh or they even, say that even, bullshit like no one goes into teaching to become rich and it's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean that you're supposed to be poor. Yeah, and it, it also doesn't mean that their jobs aren't important, right? That right. we need to like treat these people well. Um, so that that aspect of it has been very well weaponized by the right mm-hmm. uh, and and Republicans and whatnot to to push down against labor movements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's also um, and th- my favorite part of the book comes towards the end where he talks about why do right wingers hate you know, the, the so-called liberal elite. And he defines the liberal elite as, as pretty much anybody that's kind of engaged in an artistic or intellectual pursuit, more so than, say, just rich people. So like writers, artists, like that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. journalists, uh, academics, uh, even mm-hmm. yeah, I think teachers also count in, in that uh, regard. Um, and he says, and he gives a very clear answer that for them, they can envision their children as small chances it might be becoming part of the wealthy class because all you really need is a lot of money whether by by you know luck or crook or whatever but there's almost no chance that they can get into the the, the whole liberal elite thing because there's so many more like tests you got to pass it's not just about being rich you got to you know have the right code of manners you got to go to the right schools you and, and in fact you probably have to adopt beliefs that are very opposite to what they grew up with in terms of religion and you know what we call social justice now so their their hatred of, of those classes is uh based on the fact that you have monopolized all the few increasingly uh few jobs uh that we would consider non-bullshit jobs mm-hmm. the ones that you where you get to fully express your humanity uh at its like highest self-actualization or whatever um and you have, and the liberal elites have monopolized it all for themselves, and all, you know, for their he calls it like uh, spoiled, undeserving children, and you have left us to do the the worst uh, in terms of most bullshitty type of work. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very illuminating. And it, it points to the reason why they revere the military so much mm. is that it's one of the few areas where they're culturally dominant and it gives them a sort of sense of meaning, which I think he doesn't mention it, but I think the police is the other big mm-hmm. thing. Why they revere the police so much is that it's like one of the few areas where you can be a right wing, white, uh, rural type of person. And it's a job that not only pays decently, lets you uh, eke out a living, but also gives your life meaning. Because often you can't have one without the other. It's like mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. You can have the spiritually rewarding jobs, but you got to be poor. Or you can be kind of wealthy, but you got to do something stupid and bullshitty. What do you guys think the, the concept of like respect falls into this definition of bullshit jobs, right? Because there's some, bo- sorry, not bullshit jobs, but like uh, meaningful, important jobs, right? Because if you split up the non-bullshit jobs, they like meaningful, important jobs. There's like the necess- necessary jobs, sanitation workers, bus drivers, nurses, etc. Um, but they may not get that same amount of respect as say like the journalist, the artist, the like maybe even politician or a uh, lawyer. Extent, or, law- or lawyer, yeah. Yeah. I, in fact, it's often like inverse, inversely related, right? Because if you look at, like teachers don't get a lot of respect. Uh, sanitation workers don't get a lot of respect. Lawyers and, um, you know, other white-collar people get respect, at least uh, in terms of like superficial respect, because, you know, they have the fancy degrees, you know, you wear the nice suits, you work yeah. in a nice office. Yeah. But... I think a lot of that is just compensation, probably like self-generated. That's why there's like so much jargon in these industries, all this, uh, you know, like basically the equivalent of, of military medals, uh, titles they bestow them on themselves because without it, they it's the, the hollowness is exposed. Yeah, it's a professional class of experts, right? You have to like achieve a lot, work works hard to get to that point. And so people are like, oh, okay, like that's cool. I don't really understand it, but it's cool, you know. Mm-hmm. Likewise with like tech people, people, you know, what was it? Isaac Asimov says that like sufficiently sophisticated technology is indiscernible from magic, right? It's like people yeah. don't get it, so they respect it, even though like what I'm what I do in my tech job is pretty straightforward and kind of basic and mostly bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, think of the all the bullshit industry awards that they give out, like humanitarian of the year in the you know, accounting industry. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll rent what? out a nice <laughs> hotel ballroom, have a gala, right. and be like, and it's just, it's just embarrassing, right? Oh, uh, one thing I want to go through. He gives five types of bullshit jobs, and uh, you know, for listeners yeah, who haven't read fun. the book, I think it'll be very interesting. <laughs> and and you, we can play a game of you know which job do you belong to, because you know most people have bullshit jobs. So the first one he defines is a flunky. A flunky is someone whose job basically just exists to boost the ego of your superior. Like so an example he gives, uh, yeah, like an unnecessary receptionist. Yeah, like someone just answers the phone for you and tells you tells your people that you're busy, you know, or like or like the the person that makes the calls for you, you know, like you get those phone calls and then when you pick up, it's like, I've got Doctor So and So on the line for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, for fans of Seinfeld, a uh, classic flunky is uh, when uh, Kramer gets an NYU intern to be his personal <laughs> assistant for Kramerica because he wants to seem important. Uh, but you know they don't do anything they're not there to do anything necessary they're just there to give you the sheen of uh, accomplishment of um, you know prestige all that another example the second type is duct tapers now duct tapers are there because um, usually I think it has to do with software Uh, is they're just like an example of a job title that's a duct taper I think a lot of people work in IT because a lot of uh, it talks about how because so much of the best software is open source because the companies realized all their like in-house stuff is is not that good 
and um, because a lot of a lot of tech people aren't allowed to, because they're all all their jobs are bullshit in their spare time they do what they really want to do which is come up with like great software so all the best software is open source so all these companies just use it but then they're not exactly compatible with other programs because they're not being developed under like one unified system mm-hmm. so the duct taper will come in and their job is only there because it's like a residual effect of bullshit jobs. Like outside of tech though, would it be like an HR person is a duct taper? Like all they do is just put out fires and like... I think an HR person might be the next category, which is a box ticker. <laughs> uh, so a box ticker is just there, I think, so that companies can just say they did something. Without, or like say uh, they had someone on payroll in a certain with a certain title. It's like, oh, we so need So it's a, basically like the director of diversity and inclusion at your company. Right. It's like... Um, so you, you come up with a report, so then the company can say, hey, we did diversity or we did like charity. Let's say you, you organize like, like a donation thing for your company and you take a box, you file it away and nobody looks at it uh, again. That's, uh, that's what a box ticker does. Okay. Oh, I skipped one. A goon. So a goon is... I think that the, I think goons are like the large... I, I think that goon has like the most recognizable job titles, like lobbyists and like telemarketers, um, corporate lawyers, PR, PR specialists, anyone that works in finance and marketing. I feel like goons are the ones where like, if you, if, if this category disappeared, the world would like definitely be a better place. Right. Uh, some examples he gives, one example he gives is like, like a telemarketer who's doing like a bait and switch where you'll say, oh, you know, you can f- sign up for like oh, a free like all of them. whatever. Uh, but then uh, what they're trying to do is get you on the hook to, to pay for some unnecessary thing. Uh, a lot of corporate lawyers are goons because they're just like um, actually making life worse for people. But there's a <laughs> distinction between just like a person who just does evil things. Like he brings up a, like a mafia hitman because I think at least a mafia hitman is performing some kind of necessary service. <laughs> I necessary mean, for... Yeah, hey, the, you the know, Sopranos needs hitman, you know, uh, but... Uh, the difference between like that and like a corporate lawyer is that the corporate lawyer's job is 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 like again a byproduct of, of bullshitization. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that I think maybe the better characterization of the goon is that the goon is a, a job that opposes other goons hired by other companies. So like <laughs> lobbyists from company A would oppose go- uh, lobbyists from company B if they were at odds at each other in the market. <laughs> right. Same with corporate lawyers are just there because like someone else fucking sued you with their corporate yeah. lawyers. So that they, it's just like kind of self people are meant to gaslight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Or just spread like and, disinformation. And the last category is a taskmaster. This is, I think, the unnecessary middle manager whose only job is to delegate jobs. So they're just a, a middleman. It's Michael Scott. They're not really doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's, I mean, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. So those are the five categories. Do you personally have any experience? in any of those uh, categories? Um, yeah, probably goon, because I used to work for a defense contracting firm out of college. That's definitely a oh, goon. Yeah. Philip, what about you? Uh, well, t- technically, like my latest job is as a, as a which I quit recently, um, is a- Congratulations. As a, thank you, yeah. As, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe uh, well, time for this podcast is, is as like a product manager, essentially. So mm-hmm. like I do produce- work i guess and so this is like this is my my look i was thinking about this book and and like how it fits into my industry tech like i think the issue with tech is that in tech you do produce stuff like the people who work in tech 
do like actually end up writing software, which becomes a service, which does something. But I would argue that the kind of stuff that many tech companies, especially startups, do is in itself a bullshit um, profession or bullshit like industry, right? Like they're making social media products or they're mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. creating more messenger apps, even though we already have messenger apps, mm-hmm. or they're creating, you know, software for corporations to like ma- allow these people who are in bullshit jobs to do their work, like spreadsheet mm-hmm. uh, sheeting shit, right? So that's, that's my, that's where I, I think it's like the nature of the work itself is bullshit. The roles themselves, they produce stuff, but like what they're producing is crap. Do you think you know, that dating yeah. apps make things worse or better for society? Whoa, that's that's like out of left field, but I mean, that, we could have a whole that's like a whole like series of episodes we can do on that. Because um, I can I see both sides to it. Like, I mean, personally, they've been a net positive for me, but that's like a very like selfish point of view. I don't really know from like a society wide uh, impact, but that's a fascinating discussion we can have. I'll, I'll say mm-hmm. I think they've been a positive. Um, it, well, well, think about it this way. Think, think about like like his thesis around bullshit jobs, like jobs that if they had disappeared, society would be like no different or better, right? So if like dating apps had disappeared or even social media had disappeared, we'd probably still function fine as society. We'd probably actually waste less time in some cases, but yeah. maybe in some circumstances, like dating in New York would be harder. So like, I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I work, I'm a lawyer who works in a law firm. So I think, yeah, I'm, classically a goon but you know i i've experienced you know working for uh like a solo practitioner who didn't really need an associate in that case i felt more like a flunky because you know, I, yeah. I didn't really do anything what about mm-hmm. a podcaster what are we does it count if you're like not getting paid like that's still well i guess unpaid interns exist in bullshit jobs like but where are we like as, as podcasters like for this show but i think podcasters are by definition a non-bullshit job because we're like we're not getting paid for this because we so, okay so what if you were what would you were paid what if you were a paid podcaster well, I think it would depend on what kind of podcast you were doing, right? Because uh, there's a part in that book where they talk about like so- certain companies that make up their own internal social media, like a Facebook <laughs> for mm-hmm. Aetna or any of like big corporation. It's just the most miserable <laughs> place because like the, you know, the employees have to go on there and pretend to be happy or whatever. Let's say we were doing a pod, like an internal podcast <sighs> for the employees of a major company. I think that's total bullshit. But if you're doing it on your own, I mean, this, I think this is the classic definition. But it's of, basically just a creative job that you're passionate about. Yeah, so right, it right. And, it does have meaning and fulfillment. Yeah, yeah, and and for me, even though I am working a classically goon job, I've never felt dissatisfied in it because I never had any expectations for it. Even going into law school, I knew that this was just a way to make ends meet uh, for for the time being, because uh, you know my goal is to become a writer, and I knew that hey, my parents aren't celebrities they don't have any connections i'm at the age of like 22 i'm not going to get like published or probably or find like a way to, to sustain myself so i got to do something else in the meantime uh so you know i found, you know, went to law school and everything and a lot of the dissatisfaction from this uh, bullshit jobs thing is a mismatch between expectations and reality because objectively hey you're getting paid to sit around and go on twitter that's a dream job <laughs> for most people in the world yeah. but if you went into it thinking this job is going to define me as a person mm-hmm. and it's the culmination of my value as a human being of course it's going to crush you because you realize you're just there to make make the bosses feel powerful well will there be more like reported job satisfaction now that like so so much white collar work is just work from home now because i'm noticing like among my possible. friends like a lot of people really are happier working from home and they're just like, it makes my job more tolerable. Like I can just stay home. I don't have to deal with the commute. I don't have to get dressed. I don't have to like 
I don't know, eat, I can just like make my own healthy food at home. I can like be with my family more. The mm-hmm. commute like ruins my fucking day and I just got rid of that. But the issue is that like you, what you miss out on, which which is not necessarily a good thing, is like the office culture part, right? Like for some people, do people like, their miss jobs it? Become, I think it's positive, but I think it's I think it's I think it's I think it's positive, but but the reality, like the reality is, for some people, like office life is like their social life, which is not a good thing. I am right? so by sorry choice to or by hear force. that. <laughs> it's I think it's by I think it's by force, but you you get into this world where like you do your socialization with your peers in the office you hang out with them after work and so on and to have that removed from your life makes you kind of reevaluate things so i think I there's know, that having it removed too. i just see it as like if you're if you're a, like a family person then like your office culture wasn't removed you've been given the blessing of spending more time with your family I, i'm i'm talking more like think about like fresh college grads you have an office job like a knowledge job you know, you're 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 single. But then or you they don't just have, have kids, more time right? to spend with their real friends. Like, if you don't have to work from like work from Look, home, Liza, like, I, I, we're on the same side. Like, I think it's I think it's shitty that office culture, like office social life culture, exists. I'm just saying, like, it 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 probably was a big chasm for people the minute they stopped going into the office and having like the water cooler chats and lunch with their coworkers and so on. Right? They had to reevaluate all these things. I think Philip's saying it's like cutting a, a heroin addict from heroin. It's like it's yeah, yeah, good yeah, 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 yeah. they're not doing it anymore, but there's going to be like a withdrawal period. Uh-huh. Uh, related to that, there's a great part in the book that talks about how weird it is that most workers uh, are working like steadily throughout the year. Because Graeber points to pretty much before industrialized history, uh, whether you were like the lowliest serf or like a king or whatever, um, you didn't have a lot of supervision. As long as you got the work done, at the end of whatever time period you were good. Like if you were a farmer and um, naturally your work cycle is very up and down because you know, the harvest is very, a lot of work when your fields are fallow, you're just like sitting around doing whatever. Or if it's raining. Um, and that got, and that got totally upended when the whole like punch in, punch out, go to the office type of uh, culture, work culture emerged and where you were no longer selling really any kind of like product or or like thing you dug up from the ground, but actually your time, that's what you're selling. And like a lawyer, a lot of times what you're really selling is time because what you create, uh, even if you write up something, often it doesn't even get used. So what you're really selling to your client is, look how much I care for you. Yeah, Yeah, I build 2,500 hours for you this year, most of which you will not use, but we're there in case uh, you need us. That's why you should hire us. That's what you're selling. So when you work from home, you are actually destroying that really uh, malevolent part of that deal that you are selling your time to your boss because now so much of your time is unsupervisable. I know they're trying to change that with certain software, but for the most part, we're now kind of going back to the time where as long as you got the work done, you can do whatever you want. And that, like, and that goes ex- exactly thing, right? back into the, uh, the the surf versus like, you know, Lord or whatever uh, mm-hmm. feudal system that, that he talks about in the book, right? Like the, the fact that these employers can no longer keep tabs on what you're doing because you're all working from home is irritating to them. Even if people are, even if companies are, and they are functioning perfectly fine, tech companies are doing really well if you are looking at the NASDAQ, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it irks the, the people at the top of the company. And I have seen a bunch of articles come out talking about like time theft and all this time crazy theft. shit, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. really, it's about power. I think more than time. Yes, it is. Because exactly. I'm like, aren't they stealing our time, not the other way around? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's how and I and see it shows it. you that this is not really about money. Often, it is a large part, but it's not solely about it. It's ultimately about power. It's always about fucking control and power. They are willing to give up money 
to have power and control over basically their subjects' lives. And let's say people work from home, productivity goes up, profits go up. They're still going to get kind of pissed off because they can no longer police you in their own uh, little fief that <laughs> is the office tower. you went for a jog or like you washed your dishes or something. Yeah, because, hey, who knows? When you're jogging, what ideas might come in your head as opposed <laughs> to being in an office under those fluorescent lights forbidden from doing anything besides going on Wikipedia uh, or, or whatever? Even that might be disallowed. So I, I think that's a good point, actually, because like, if you think about the nature of knowledge work, like desk work, um, especially in tech, actually, uh, when you're producing like software and stuff, you do a lot of thinking outside of like when you're sitting at your desk, right? Mm-hmm. Like I had a coworker mm-hmm. uh, in like my, my very first internship tell me that in our line of work, you're constantly working really, especially if you're at a startup and you're like, it, it's, you know, it, it takes over your life to some extent. But when you sit down, you actually like write the code or produce a document. It's just a, in his words, a typing exercise. You're just typing for the most part, mm-hmm. right? So, but you think about jobs like on assembly lines, like or as a farmer, like producing actual goods, you mm-hmm. can't do your job unless you're on the factory floor, right? You yeah. can't do your job unless you're on the farm. So, it, so, you know, it's kind of ridiculous for them to say that because to some extent you, you are working on these things, you're, you're, you know, on the, on the weekends anxiously thinking about the TPS report or whatever. And you're constantly <laughs> on call all the time too because we have these phones with us. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous concept, this whole time theft thing. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense for them because it keeps, you know, everything from student loans to employer-given health insurance, all this is meant to control the population, keep you uh, unable to, you know, fight back in any way if, you know, the, the power imbalance is shifted way too much to, to the, like, employer class. Uh, and and I think it's great. Working from home, I think it's great. I used to think that I could never work outside the office because my concentration would go haywire. Exact opposite. It's way better mm. uh, yeah. working from home. I see that with, like, a lot of my friends, too, that they're just like, my mind is so much clearer. I have so much less stress. I feel so much more bonded to my family. And it's like, it just, you know, they don't, it doesn't make them love their job, but it, they just like, it makes it so that it doesn't feel like I don't hate it so much. It's not such a burden. So actually it makes them buy into the whole system even more if you can work from home, right? I feel like, I feel like yeah, the control like- over their, the control over their lives is, is actually stronger if you let people work from home. Cause it's like, uh, I don't know. I feel like at this point, people are so used to it their new way of life that if you force people back into the office, I don't know if you're trying to prevent like a general strike or like some sort of like workers revolution. I feel like that. Yeah, you're taking away all that from them now. But I think the fear is that, I mean, Philip, you talked about people having no social life outside of the office, right? I think that's perfect. That's what they want because then you're afraid to say quit because that's the ultimate yeah. power of the employee, right? To just walk away and why would you walk away? Because you have a different set of values from simply working at that place. I mean, there's a reason why people say uh, they like hiring parents. Like if you're a mom or a dad, uh, I guess dads more than moms because, you know, of the whole like bias against women women with children and all that. But they love fathers. And why do they love fathers? Because the fathers are willing to put up with a lot of bullshit because they know they have mouths to feed and put kids through college and all mm-hmm. that. So th- what they're really afraid of is for you to develop some parallel set of values where you know you don't really need your coworkers. I mean, as friends, you don't need your job as fulfillment. You don't need uh, your employer for health insurance or to pay off your student debt or whatever. And anytime they kind of piss you off, you can just walk away. And I think that's what they're most afraid of. They don't really care as much about, say, productivity yeah, it's, it's or whole, profitability. It's the whole like you're you're you know talking about your company 
as a family. It's that whole like narrative that also bullshit. It it is yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, we- you guys are a family that can fire you. Like, what kind of family would that be? <laughs> uh, if I may transition a bit to cancel culture, I think a lot of this thing about bullshit jobs explains cancel culture because that part I talked to you about, you know, the liberal elites hogging all the most desirable jobs. Cancel culture is a way, uh, I guess, for another slice of that liberal uh, side to wrest that control away, right? Because these jobs are harder and harder to get uh, because of increasing nepotism, because of mm-hmm. increasing like bullshitization, uh, and the fact that the the supply of people eligible for these jobs, more people are getting college educated. Technology is getting to the point where even something that was very difficult, technically difficult, like 20, 30 years ago, like making a film, is much much easier and affordable now. There's simply more people available for fewer and fewer mm-hmm. of these most desirable jobs that are able to sustain your living, lets you express your creativity and thinking, etc. Yeah, cancel culture, it only exists in the creative industries like Hollywood, music, publishing, all kinds of media. Like cancel culture never happens among like nurses or postal workers. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think to an it might when let's say like uh see this is why I think it's so evil to try to fire people for things they do outside of work. Cause then you're playing right into your employer's hands where, Hey, we broke free from the, the office uh, fief by working from home, but now saying that anything you do 24 seven that's recorded uh, is now you're under the jurisdiction of your employer mm-hmm. is now expanding that office to like every square inch of your, of your living space, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is so um, short-sighted, mm-hmm. but yeah, you're right on the whole, most people get canceled are not working jobs that people don't like. It's the most desirable jobs are the most apt to get canceled because it's a big the fight to get those yeah. jobs. Yeah, the glamour jobs. I wonder, I wonder how that's actually working out. I mean, we, I, I know we talk a lot about cancel culture on this show and this this actually fits really nicely into our running theory around it, like around this whole, like, it's a protectionist racket kind of thing. Um, but how often do they actually manage to, like, toss out a you know straight white guy at the top and then replace him i guess it does happen doesn't it it happens right because yeah they know that if they replace that executive who's being canceled they have to replace that person with a person of color or a woman or lgbt person and so on so maybe it does work yeah and i think we see that with the rise of diversity consultants uh i think we can mm-hmm. start going in on that topic now That's because a bullshit job. It, yeah here's the question is if you're like a diversity consultant at a corporation or a tv show or movie is that a bullshit job yes How's it not? How is it not a bullshit job? <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, I think, I think on the whole, it it is a bullshit job. Although, okay, like like I think so. You think about like the need to have more diverse workplaces. If you think that's actually a need, it is a need. is a bit fabricated. It is it is a need in the sense that it'll it'll you know move things forward for society. Fine, okay, but you have to ask yourself when you hire this diversity consultant. Are they actually accomplishing that need, or are they just kind of there to make the company feel like it's making progress towards uh, that goal. Because yeah, if, you look at, I, if you look at tech, which is the, the, one of the um, you know, industries that's not the most plagued by this issue of like lack of diversity, but definitely gets the most eyeballs on them for lack of diversity, they have not made a lot of progress despite like, I mean, the like last having a diverse work culture of, is, is good. And a, a diverse work, like yeah, yeah, your that's, employee that's pool right. is good. But like, does it, the diver- do you need a diversity consultant to do that and make sure that you do that? No. I, I don't think like because uh, I've witnessed this at a large uh, large uh, tech company 
where they went hard on the whole diversity thing. They had all this like unconscious bias training and so on internally. And like, it felt good. It felt good to bias. me as in- Just say racism or like sexism, you know? Like just say <laughs> sure, what okay, it is. Yeah, like, right. But they, they put all this effort, all this time. All, honestly, like a lot of seminars that are kind of bullshit for employees to go through. And they're bullshit, not because like what they taught you wasn't useful. They're bullshit because there was no outcome. Like these companies are just as not that, they barely move the needle on diversity. Mm-hmm. And having these diversity like consultant hires, I don't think it does a whole lot. I think it just to makes cover. things like this feel better. Yeah. And it covers yeah. often it's covered as a PR cover for something they fucked up, right? Yeah. I mean I've long maintained that a lot of these diversity workshops and stuff is actually a covert operation by racists to make everyone hate the idea of diversity. But here's another theory. <laughs> what if these workshops are meant to antagonize otherwise perfectly sane employees into, I don't know, maybe Purging going on a rant on YouTube? Hmm? Purging their own coworkers? Uh, maybe, but, but uh, what if, like, say you, you're like some white dude? You're, you know, you're perfectly fine, whatever. But you keep having to go to these workshops. You get pissed off. You go on YouTube. You rant. Then you get a work complaint. Hey, now the diversity consultant is self-perpetuating their own need. I wonder if Did that's that happened at Google recently, like in the past few years. Uh, possibly. I wouldn't be surprised. You're not talking about the James Damore thing, right? Am I? I don't know. That's the there? guy who passed around that Google Doc. Yeah, about the Google why. memo. But what was it about again? Remind me. Um, uh, Philip, you might be more knowledgeable about this than me. I, I did write an article about it at one point. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it, it was, it was. What I recall is that it, it, he wrote a memo that basically said like diversity initiatives at at companies, specifically at Google, were useless, and we do not need to hire uh, more. He, he was calling out women specifically, though there was a lot of like implying that P- PLC were also not necessarily people we need more of and he was also specifically this is the bad part he was saying that women are bio biologically not as good at men at software engineering <laughs> so that i mean that was just straight up was sexist, he driven right? to, there, was he driven to do this by too many diversity seminars well maybe well no it, he was he was right because he saw this stuff happen and you know being so the company right. maybe, maybe he's an example of like what they want more of you know I don't right. think I don't think Maybe it's a conspiracy. It so I think it's just I just think it's the outcome. If you look at incidents like James Demore, the outcome is that people who are a little bit more right winging are going to feel pushed into a corner, and they're going to respond in crazy ways like this that cause a bunch of incidents. And then those incidents will lead the company to do all this more like additional shit to try to correct it, right? By hiring more diversity consultants or putting more seminars in place. Like that's that's how they respond. <laughs> they don't respond. Exactly. If you look at the stats, they do not respond by hiring more women or people of color or, or you know lgbt folks they yeah. don't do that they just hire more diversity consultants yeah or, or <laughs> whatever put programs in place to to manage that stuff like yeah and, and this is the classic moral hazard of the alignment of like social justice with profits because now there's no interest in the diversity industry to actually fix the problem because then they're out of a job so their best bet is to do just enough to like trigger these types of people and then um then they, they're perpetually in employment and in demand because that's that's like the only real way the companies want to respond because in the ultimately in the end it doesn't accomplish anything. So the companies can do their box ticking, and then the diversity consultants get paid, and uh, yeah, it's it's like a it's a parasitic or symbiotic system more like. What's kind of fucked up is the people who are like the actual people who are these diversity consultants. Think about their perspective on their job, right? Because it's a new made up job. But it's the kind of thing that's very, it's very much so like in the zeitgeist, like fits so well with the, you know, BLM and all the narratives we have going on right now, like pro LGBTQ plus movements. They probably see it as like, 
if they were to talk about it, you know, with friends, close loved ones, like I've landed my dream job, right? Like they're oh, yeah, for fully, sure, yeah. fully brainwashed that their job is necessary, even if it accomplishes nothing. Um, and that just helps make it, it makes it hard to, to remove because now they're incentivized <laughs> I landed my to dream job at McKinsey. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah, then you can have it both ways. You get the nice, well compensated, well benefit packaged white collar job. But now you can also say you're fighting for a force of good. I think for now, I think the full seeping in of how bullshit it is hasn't quite yet set in. Uh, or it, it's too dangerous to actually say that out loud in it a way crazy. that it's not. It, it's perfectly uh, acceptable for an accountant at you know PricewaterhouseCoopers to say like, "Hey, my job is bullshit." Uh, whereas if you're a diversity consultant, you say that you'll you'll get I don't know ostracized on Twitter or wherever you do your socializing. Mm-hmm. So for now, it's it's safe from from the it's like in a bubble. Mm-hmm. The cruel elitism of do what you love. Okay, so that I always thought that was really such an like an upper class thing to believe, to think that you should be defined by your job when the vast majority of jobs out there are not pleasant and they cannot be pleasant. There is no way you can turn, you know, garbage collection or most cleaning jobs or whatever into something that's aspirational, fulfilling. It just, somebody has to do it. So are you saying that if we are defined by our jobs, that those people love being garbage pickers that they are defined by their garbage picking no because to the people who espouse this mindset the only jobs that they really think about are those uh you know creative class jobs where you get to fully actualize actualize yourself as a human being it's it's a monstrous mindset that ultimately hurts everyone involved because even the ivy league grad types who can aspire for those jobs most of them will not get it uh and it'll drive them crazy because then they'll have to settle for a bullshit job that ultimately gives them a very cushy lifestyle, but unfortunately doesn't make them feel like heroes in their own movie, so they become depressed. All the other problems with like celebrity culture fits in here too, right? My other problem with that statement is that it just feeds into the whole like underpayment, like work for free culture that we have now, you know, like do what you love was meant to justify all of these like unpaid interns and low wage entry level positions. Cause they mostly exist in industries that people actually like they strive to work in. So like creative industries, media, publishing, um, fashion, especially um, government, you know, there's like a premium on suffering. So if you want a job in a desired field, then you should suffer by like paying your dues by having to work for free. And then if you can endure the suffering, and usually only wealthy kids can endure the suffering, then the money will follow. It's it's nothing but exploitation. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's uh, super real in fashion. My, my wife works in fashion, as you guys know. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you work for one of these like um, more prestigious uh, houses, not necessarily big ones, right? I'm talking about like a small, like well-known in Canada house, like fashion uh, studio in in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, they will tell you things like, "We are paying you somehow legally less than minimum wage because instead you'll get the occasional trip to New York City for Fashion Week." Because you get and like, when you're perks there, or whatever. Yeah, you get, you don't really get a whole ton of perks. Like they barely had like coffee, like a functioning coffee machine. <laughs> but like, but like they they um. When you, when you do get these perks, like going to New York City, you're slaving away like 12 to 14 hours a day, you know, mm-hmm. trying to trying to make the runway show work well. You don't really get any time to like enjoy the glamour of, you know, going to New York or Paris or whatever. So it, it is uh, it is tons of bullshit. I'll also say this too, that I think the, the work, um, do what you love thing also applies to well-paid jobs. Because I think about tech, like tech in the last decade 
has been one of the largest proponents of pushing the whole do what you love like line of thinking. And because it's been, I think yeah, it's been positioned as like a creative job now. It's been created as a creative job, but but it is one that pays well. Okay, the the mm-hmm. trouble is that it the the do what you love line is part of the Kool Aid that draws people towards well paid, but otherwise, in my opinion, going back to what I was saying earlier, societally useless work. Like you're mm-hmm. producing societally useless shit, right? Um, and it, it really helps them kind of blur the lines between what someone who's out of college, who's like super smart, you know, wants to get going on the career, should spend their time on. Um, so it, yeah. it has it has functions in in both places, I think. Yeah, I think the the kind of uh, the honeymoon phase with the tech industry is definitely over. But when yeah. I graduated in college, I think tech was was it had this like uh, lack of uh, stain on it that say something like banking and law. Uh, had that these were corrupt professions that you only really went to because you only care about money. Consulting was kind of in that middle zone where it sounded a little bit different, but I think people kind of know it was a bullshit job. But tech was that perfect thing in the in the middle of the Venn diagram where you could get paid and you could honestly tell yourself that you were doing something fulfilling. Not just not just fulfilling, but that that had quote unquote impact on society, right? Because at the time it was it was rising was when the iPhone came out, and so everyone had a, com- a, a, a computer in their pocket, and so things you could work on could be seen everywhere, right? Yeah. And that visibility gave it clout, right? Which is now starting to to lose its sheen. Yeah. I was thinking about like all the movies that I've watched that have like bullshit jobs in them, and I think that. Edward Norton's job in Fight Club is like the ultimate <laughs> bullshit job. Yeah, because I just read Fight Club, the book, very recently. So when David Graeber talks about how after his original essay on bullshit jobs came out, he said he was like in DC and he saw people cutting out like printouts of certain paragraphs from his book and pasting them on the subway. And so that was a very Project Mayhem thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, before like Project Mayhem goes into full terrorist mode, but you could see them doing stuff like that, right? All the lobbyists and and the politicians uh, on their way to the, the hill on the subway and they start seeing those things mm-hmm. on, the, on the subway. Very, very fight clubby. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. I, mean, I think maybe one last thing I will say about uh, the book and, and Graeber is like RIP. Uh, he, he passed away uh, oh, right, yeah. September this year, uh, which is which is a shame because he, you know, I think this book is a little bit kind of like cult following, but has interesting impacts on on labor. Um, I would have loved to see what he had to say about like the work from home culture we discussed during the pandemic and stuff. I don't know if he wrote about that at all, but yeah, that would have fascinated him for yeah, sure. Bit of a loss. Another RIP to Scott Timberg who wrote Culture Crash, which unfortunately we didn't get a lot of time to at all to discuss like on this pod, but. Yeah, that's another great book. And it, it ties into this because it, it talks about how, I mean, th- uh, this also goes into about all the jobs lost that Nolan and Scorsese are talking about because those mm. jobs are the ones that sustain people mm-hmm. who are adjacent to creative industries but are not exactly the super duper stars who are, you know, directors, uh, singers, writers, types. But all those people need the kind of like their support staff or they at least they used to. Mm-hmm. But with Culture Crash talking about from, you know, the movie projector guys to uh, the record store owners, mm-hmm. all that is being wiped out as as more and more of this is becoming corporatized. And, you know, as I said, Nolan fears that, you know, with the way like these residuals work and all that, you cannot sustain yourself even being like kind of like a character actor. Like mm-hmm. unless you're a huge movie star and even like movie stars don't even really exist anymore. Um, there's no room for like the working class artists, which I always think is such a tragedy. I, I yeah, remember being editors, in law school. And- uh, editors, makeup artists, video effects people, 
video effects is like that is one sector of the film industry that is like so god awful and so it's horrible bad. to its yeah. workers. Yeah, my, yeah. I mean, my, uh, there there is somebody who works in uh, essentially like like the Photoshop type of special effects industry, talking about how their job is to just manipulate the the pictures of celebrities, especially female celebrities. Make their eyes whiter, yeah. get like the cheese off their asses, and like I don't know, <laughs> make them all look skinnier. Yeah. Um, but as I was saying about working class artists, when I was in law school, we would put on a musical every year and there'd be like such talented people here. And, you know, when there are like three L's, it's their last performance. And I remember thinking, cause I was like playing in the pit, uh, the piano and stuff. I'm like, oh my God, this could be the last time these people ever perform. And these are people who for most of their life were, you know, like actually uh, they were performers. Uh, one, one girl who, who was like our, our band leader, like ever since she was a kid, her dad, and she would go to like gigs and he would accompany her and stuff and i'm thinking now she's gonna be like a corporate lawyer and she'll probably never really sing again i thought it was always so sad i wish there was a world where she could just kind of people aren't um sympathetic to these people either they it's like you find out that like some local cities like symphony orchestra ran out of funding and ha ha you know yeah oh good now you have to get real jobs like there is such a hatred for artists Mm-hmm. And it's not, it, it's yeah. like, I understand the hatred for like celebrities, you know, but like <laughs> the hatred for people who play in like symphony orchestras or they do things like video effects or like special effects makeup. Like I, mm-hmm. I understand as in like, I understand what they've been brainwashed to believe because they totally bought into that. Like suffering is a virtue, you know, I'm a better person than you yeah. because I hate my job. Yeah, yeah. There is but I also that, think there's a lot of envy involved. That deep down, they wish they were those people. Envy. It's like I wish I had your talent, and like I wish I could wake up in the morning and absolutely look forward to what I do. You know, use my actual talents. Yeah, I think a lot of hatred comes from. Oh, you think you were better than me? You thought you could coast through life doing fun shit? Ha ha! Look at you. Now you're down here with the rest of us. So fuck you. Where you Which belong? I think, um, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think this is what is fascinating about, say, a lot of like Trump supporters' disdain for black athletes, because to them, the athlete is the, the dream job. You're playing a game that a lot of these guys probably either play, whether in real life or on like PlayStation, um, and they're getting paid <laughs> millions to do it. They're like dating models uh, while they're at it. So when they see those people like taking a knee, I think that's why they get so angry. But they can't fully disguise them. But do they hate white athletes that do it too? What, I'm sure they hate white athletes who like say take a knee as well. They probably see them as like race traders. Um, I see. But I think there's that you can just feel the palpable jealousy. Like, oh, yeah. you are living my dream life. How how dare you not shut up and be grateful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, we're almost at time now. Uh, a- any last thoughts? Um, no, I was just gonna say um, I was a. Uh, um, no, I don't have any. I don't have any last thoughts. I'll save it for next week. Yeah, I said my piece. Maybe we should. Uh, maybe we should do Culture Crash in a future episode. Yeah. Sounds yeah, like definitely. I I think definitely uh, its ideas will seep into our discussions for if sure. it has not already. Oh, one last thing. In in um bullshit jobs, he talks about a certain a corporate lawyer who used to be part of like a very popular rock band, and then mm-hmm. he like a couple. Of, I'm pr- I'm pretty sure that he's talking about Blind Melon, and I know this because oh, really? that guy went to my law school like we didn't overlap but he graduated i think just a few years before me i'm pretty sure there aren't that many is that um, the little girl bumblebee video yeah yeah, 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 yeah. that uh, what's that song called no rain or something yeah, yeah um yeah. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's talking about that guy because, as I said, how many... That's still, like, a popular uh, Halloween costume. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, like, a, I think it's one of those huge one-hit wonders. I had never heard of it until I heard of that guy uh, when I went to law school. But, yeah, I think it's one of those huge hits of the 90s. Anyway. Okay, uh, so without further ado, then, thank you for listening to this episode on Bullshit Jobs. We hope you enjoyed it. Please read this book. It's, as I said, it's a very readable book, and it's um, it probably won't tell you anything you didn't already know, because I think this is something we all feel. But to see it articulated uh, is always enlightening. So I highly recommend it. I mean, I borrowed it from the library. I finally got a library card like you recommended. Finally. Liza, so. See, and now you can read all <laughs> these nice. movies too. And you can like, I guess when the libraries finally open up again so people can go in them, you can use the 3D printer. So much fun. Ooh. Oh, what? 3D printer? Wow, I didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was really nice. Okay, so thank you guys for joining us with this discussion. We'll be here next week. Bye, everyone. Later. Bye.